0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, April 20th. Today we have an interview with three different people, I guess five in total, but we have Asher Delug, Sean Emery, and Jonah Lipton on the show, and we're talking Mohawk Group. I want to throw a few disclosures out there before we start because uh, I believe all three of them were shareholders, and uh, Asher Delug was a co-founder of Mohawk Group, but he is no longer a director or insider, Um, so the – the discussion is not meant to be a recommendation by any means. It's supposed to be for informational purposes only. So do
1: your own research every time. Don't listen yeah. to anyone else. Doesn't sound like something we should have
0: to say, but you know, use, build you, your own conviction. Yeah, do your you, own research.
1: Yes, use your own research. This is like everyone says it's not recommendation. We say that to a point. You got to know what you own. Don't listen to what anyone else is saying. <laughs> but uh, like we say that, it's a fun discussion, and there's a lot of great insights from it.
0: Definitely, um, and afterward we stick stick around for the show notes if you want. There's some interesting ones
1: from this week. The deli. Uh, Amazon yeah. shareholder letter. Yes, uh, but what were sort of your highlights from the interview? Big takeaways. Uh, yeah, I mean, Asher gave a framework of how they look at the company, or at least what they did look at when mm-hmm. he was there. Sean had a lot of data anecdotes mm-hmm. about how they look at how Mohawk is doing outside of just looking at the earnings reports. And then we talked about the dynamic of kind of diluting uh, the share count, but also using it with uh, to make it creative acquisitions. So that was just kind of – those are my favorite parts of the discussion.
0: Definitely. Uh, and we have our sales pitch before we get to the interview. So it's code CCM at SevenInvesting.com. Use that code. So uh, I know we say it every show, but uh, help us out, help them out, help yeah. yourself out. It's a win-win-win scenario. Yep,
1: ten dollars off your first month, so it's only seven dollars to start off. That's a screaming deal. You get great analysis from Matt Cochran, our friend who does a lot of fintech and expertise, six <laughs> financial expertise. Yeah, I'm going to list them off. Dan Klein, retail expert. Dana is a healthcare Newbie. expert. Newbie. Yeah, she's the one that just joined. You also have oh gosh simon. i'm forgetting his name yeah well max. we'll get to. i was gonna get to steve. Simon last year yeah you have max who's an expert in biotech you have steve and simon who are very privy to what's going on within the tech landscape and then mm-hmm. lastly we have oh gosh i'm blanking on his name um
0: i thought we got him all
1: no no, no the oh. uh, the guy on like on. Uh, yeah he is from and i'm sorry uh, i'm not getting your named. name yeah he is also very privy to tech uh PhD, really, really impressive background there. So you get research pedigree on that. Yeah, so you get research from all different types of the market and it can really help your research process. So I don't know, why wouldn't you sign up? Yeah, use code
0: CCM. Without further ado, here's the interview.
2: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett, or any other podcast guests, is not formal advice or recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode.
0: Okay, today we are welcomed by different guests. So we've got Sean Emery, who our listeners are probably familiar with, Jonah Lupton and Asher Delug. Um, Asher and Jonah are new to the show, but a little bit of background on everyone. Uh, Sean is the founder and CIO at Avery Co. Jonah Lupton is, he runs Lupton Capital and a growth fund for social capital. I think I'm getting that right. And then Asher Delug is the co-founder, a co-founder of Mohawk Group, and he's on the board at Spin Launch. Uh, So before we dive into like the detailed discussion of the business, we wanted to kind of lay the groundwork, uh, give a little background for anyone who's unfamiliar. So why don't we start with Asher um, and then we can go around the room. Sort of why do you own the company? And uh, I guess for Sean and Jonah, how did you come across it? And maybe Asher, what were the early days like?
2: Sure. Um, You know, I'm I'm a little bit different. I'm a co-founder, so I've been holding the stock for seven years now, since the very beginning. Um, I actually could have sold by now I'm unrestricted, but, uh, extremely bullish on their, on their business and their business model. So I'm, I'm a long-term holder. Um, you know, I guess the reason why I'm still holding it, um, after all these years and plan to keep holding it is because it's, it's not only growing extremely fast, but the growth is extremely repeatable and sustainable, which is something that you know in my businesses in the past, every year, you're you know you're growing fast, but every year you're asking yourself, how are we gonna do this again? you know how are we gonna grow at this rate again? We need new levers. Um, but in the case of Mohawk, it's um, it feels extremely repeatable. Um, their, their, their model and I think they can do what they're doing with these kinds of growth rates for, for many years to come, you know?
3: Okay. Sean, what about you? Yeah, no, obviously echoing kind of, uh, somewhat he said, obviously, uh, we are shareholders and full disclosure of that. And, and, um, we're not making any recommendations here, but we are trying to kind of articulate our, our, our rationale, uh, and, and the story we think, um, Stepping back, how, how did we find it? Obviously, so, so we try to look at all the IPOs, uh, roadshows once they go public. I actually remember uh, Yaneve in kind of what seemed like a little basement, um, kind of pitching the story uh, digitally. Um, and that was the first time I heard of it. And, and honestly, it was a compelling kind of idea, but uh, to be quite honest with you, it seemed a little early. And and the overall model didn't necessarily uh, reflect maybe uh, the potential opportunity. Fast forward a couple of years, we think, uh, they're starting to grow into themselves as, as an organization. When we look at kind of uh, investments, specifically structural growth investments, we really focus on kind of five key pillars, which is management, growing market, growing market share within that market, margin, potential expansion, and, and multiple expansion. And they kind of hit all those criteria um, in terms of what we're looking for. Online's uh, online's growing. Uh, we're seeing that it's 30% of kind of total commerce. Asia, it's 50%, and we think both of those are still early days. As kind of the foundation of online commerce um, continues to evolve and scale, and many of the companies that are are, are building out the infrastructure are, are less than 10 years old, um, and then growing market share within kind of these these marketplace models. We think if you think of the legacy models, they're they're really around uh, people sitting around a table and and procuring products and putting them into brick and mortar and and um, essentially kind of a really top-down approach and you're kind of paying for uh, physical shelf space. And the marketplace model turns this on its head. It's really consumer driven. It's, it's um, shelf space, digital shelf space, and it's really predicated on reviews, rankings. And, and Mohawk sits there trying to optimize for the consumer. Amazon's trying to optimize for the consumer. So there's an alignment there. And ultimately we think this is a compelling story just based on their success of uh, organic product uh, development Uh, along with this new acquisitive strategy that they've been um, uh, taking on over the last six months. So all in all, we think this is an interesting story as they they continue to go down this path of uh, growing into online commerce and the marketplace model.
0: Jonah, I know they kind of hit all the points, but uh, how did you come across it? Um, And then feel free to add anything.
4: Yeah, so I mean, out of the three of us, I'm the newest one to the stock. I've been in Mohawk since early December. So mostly, so last year, 2020, I was focused on larger companies. Um, I, I had a big position in e-commerce stocks. I was in Shopify, I was in Etsy, I was in Farfetch. And then towards the end of 2020, I started transitioning my, my portfolio to small caps and mid caps. I just thought that some of these large cap names names had run too far too fast, and we were gonna start to see some multiple contraction. So, I wanted to start adding some smaller names to the portfolio, uh, did some screens, uh, talked to a few people. I actually had someone mention Mohawk to me back in the summer when the stock was in the single digits. I just never took a hard look at it because I had such a big position in Shopify and Etsy and so forth. So, you know, once I made the decision in, let's say, early Q4 to start transitioning to small caps and mid caps by the end of the year. Um, after I took a deep dive on Mohawk and actually did a Substack write up on the company in mid December, um, I've been adding to the position ever since. So, Mohawk is right now my fourth largest position in my personal portfolio and probably second or third in my social capital fund because I've been adding a lot to uh, the position. I don't have much cash in my personal portfolio, but I did have some cash coming into today in my social capital fund. So I've been adding the Mohawk today as it's as it's pulled back under 29. So, you know, like both of these, uh, both Asher and, and Sean said, I just think the story is pretty interesting, especially at these prices, this valuation, the combination of launching products and growing them organically combined with the accretive M&A strategy. You know, right now the stock's trading at, let's call it 30 times EBITDA with the 100% top line growth. I just, I don't see much more downside from here
1: okay uh now we're going to get to more of the specifics of the business we're really going to focus on how they can grow from here because that is a big part of mohawk um we'll start with asher and then if anyone wants to follow up please go ahead how do you see the product mix expanding over time is it going to be more through acquisitions or organically through new product launches
2: um for the next few years i personally i think it's going to be uh mostly MA. i think M&A will eclipse organic uh, keep in mind, organic's is going to still grow extremely strong like it has been since we started the business, like clockwork. Um, but the MA is just so overwhelmingly large, the roll up opportunity in the near term, um, that I think it's going to give the direct business, direct product launch a run for its money. Um, but I think pro- pro- probably the the way I think about it beyond direct versus MA is. Um, you know, these are totally complementary strategies. When they acquire a, a new company, it gives them a beachhead and a new vertical to go ahead and launch tons of new products from there. So, you know, the the and is just ultimately amplifying their product launch, direct product launch business.
1: Okay. Anyone else have any
4: follow-ups? Uh, maybe we'll start with Jonah and then we'll move to Sean. So... I do think right now, so it's I don't know exactly how fast organic is growing. They don't really break it out that clearly, but I do think the bigger opportunity is going to be on the M&A side. So I've never actually shared this, but five or six years ago, I was living in North Carolina uh, running a web development company, and I met with a couple other entrepreneurs and we actually talked about doing something similar to this. We just thought there were so many of these smaller e-commerce brands out there that were looking for an exit. You know, someone started these companies with a couple of friends, they grew up to five or 10 million dollars. And, you know, you're not getting acquired by Procter and Gamble. So, you know, like how do those founders actually exit the business and you know, get some liquidity and that's where Mohawk can be there to step in and buy these very attractive, still growing businesses, generating free cash flow at attractive multiples, you know, chop out some of the overhead or unnecessary expenses and costs like people uh, and make those businesses even more profitable than they were before. So I I think going forward, the M&A strategy is is what's going to attract more institutional investors to the story. Um, but I think, you know, the organic is the organic growth and launching products is kind of like the, the icing on the cupcake.
0: Sean, anything to add?
4: Yeah. I mean, not much. I think it's just
3: echoing the fact that, yeah, look, th- th- there's new categories, uh, coming up uh, all the time. And, um, in, within those categories or keywords or, or product listings, there's, there's really an opportunity to organically create something and, and kind of, they, they take that approach from the bottom up. Um, then you talk about the acquisition strategy and if it is this accretive and look, we speak with, um, Amazon sellers quite often and, uh, speaking to single kind of product or single brand and very successful, you, you actually recognize just how much, uh, help they actually need on the technology side and kind of the know-how of managing their supply chain. And these are companies that are successful on this platform. So that's essentially who they're going up against uh, on the product side. So organic th- or through acquisitions, it's really improving the products of, of kind of the example that I'm talking about or or, or essentially just building from the ground up and um, even building products for uh over the next kind of two, three, four, five years are for other marketplaces that I think um, we're in the early innings of, of seeing play out. So that's really my kind of two cents to add on everything they already said.
4: And I think that early, I think that early endings point is, is important because even though we saw the acceleration of e-commerce last year during the pandemic, this whole e-commerce thing is just getting started. I mean, I know people, including my parents, that really didn't do anything on e-commerce, including Amazon, until they had to last year, and now they're addicted to it. So and I think there's a lot of people. so the fact that, and I know some people like the poke holes in the story saying that they're so, you know Mohawk is so reliant on Amazon, I don't think that necessarily has to be a bad thing. I mean, Amazon's the the largest, most powerful e-commerce platform on the planet. Um, you know, with 150 or 200 million prime customers, I think the fact that uh, Mohawk is aligned with them is a is a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I guess on the acquisition side, uh, how do you, uh, and we can sh- start with Sean on this, but how do you think about uh, the dilution? Because a lot of these acquisitions are done um, or financed partially with stock. Um, and so they're kind of using that as currency. Is that something you like at, uh, the current valuation. Um, I mean, I guess is it a concern for you at all, or is would you prefer that?
3: Yeah, no, look, I'll take that in two ways. It's really the form of funding and also the acquisition kind of strategy itself. And when you look at um, the terms of funding, obviously equity is the most expensive form of financing. So I'd rather prefer uh, the cheapest kind of funding uh, possible. But I think what we're seeing is two things, is one, uh, an improvement in financing, right? We saw their latest deal, the size of it, and also the, the reduction in interest. Um, so I think that's, that's something to kind of uh, put in your pocket, but also we have to keep in mind where, where they've been. Um, so if you just step back, you, you look at most credit decisions are based on kind of like trail, 12 month trailing. Um, and the last 12 months is really the first time they've they squeaked out any sort of profitability. So we have to understand where we are but more importantly is where we're going. So w- when you look over the next 12 months and you see the potential guidance that implies uh, X level of profitability, we can assume that there's not only a product flywheel that's that's happening here, both organically and through acquisitions, but also one through financing and a financing flywheel as they improve this platform. And I think uh, from a margin standpoint, that's gonna be highly accretive at some point in the future. Um, on top of that, I think it's important to understand that this uh, Mohawk probably went public maybe uh, two years too early. Um, this was, if you look at them right now, they're probably primed to go public right now if they were private. Um, just hitting profitability, just scaling the business. And ultimately, I think people are are um, uh, kind of thinking of, of Mohawk given that they've been public for so long and then comparing kind of financing structures. This was very similar to a private equity like financing, a late stage financing. And ultimately, I think that's where the business is. However, yet if you think of where the business is going, I think again that flywheel on the financing side starts to make some sense. Now, the the um, dilution uh, comment that you you mentioned, yeah, there's there's uh, equity dilution, but it is accretive. So it's it's important to understand that they're financing this business through dilution, but using a higher vi- valued asset to buy or lower valued assets. Therefore, just in simple terms, the um, total asset in itself is is we're lowering the overall value of of the the uh, conglomerate in a sense. So I think that's an important distinction when you're talking about using dilution to fund something uh, and, and seeing that return on that uh, investment. So that's how we, we look at it. Again, it's about finding the, the cheapest form of, of funding, but again putting some context around where this company is today and where they're going.
4: It's actually that's a good point. That that most recent oh. financing, you know, eight percent debt with warrants does look sort of similar to what you would get with a private company doing a venture debt deal. So
0: Asher, anything to add to Sean's comments?
4: Really
2: interesting comments. Um, I mean, I will say as far as two years uh, too early, it does resonate. You know, we it was definitely a debate at the time uh, about, you know, bringing the company public and it, it was a rocky initial go. You know, at, at this point, I do feel despite the pullback, we're in a great place, um, you know, around that billion dollar Valuation, but it, it does resonate overall. The comments that perhaps we went private a bit too uh, public a bit too
4: early, and then just in general, um, you know, in terms of how they're doing deals and you know whether or not I like that strategy. I mean, I do because of the price tag of the deals. You know, they're only paying I think on average, let's call it three three to five times EBIT. I believe was the Healing Solutions deal. And, you know, the stock is is obviously trading at significantly higher than that. Um, so if, you know, if, the, if they were, you know, if the stock was trading at 30 times EBITDA and they were doing deals at 30 times EBITDA, I wouldn't necessarily like it. But I think the strategy, you know, the fact that they're buying companies that are already proven and profitable uh, and they're buying them what seems to be like a discount, um, because those companies probably don't really have any other form of of liquidity or exit, which is obviously a good thing for Mohawk. So I, I like it. I mean, I, I don't know when I don't know if we're going to see any new product launches in the near future. Um I guess I hope we do, but I mean o- only if they really see big opportunity in that particular category. Otherwise I want them to double down on the MA strategy.
0: Yeah. Asher, you got your hand Just up think- there?
2: Yeah, um, just another point on the on the a which has been talked about a bit, but um, you know, obviously it's super accretive even at the three to five X type of multiples that they're looking to pay. Some deals have been less than that. I think there was one at two and a half X, but um, I think the real number when you look retrospectively in a year from now is going to be more like one to two X when you factor you know all the cost synergies and all the Ability to um, enhance top line, you know, new product launches as well as SKU optimization for existing products. I think that's going to be a big wake-up call for the market too. Um, that you know, people are talking about, oh, you know, perhaps the multiples will rise over time. Uh, but in reality, when you look back on these multiples, they're gonna they're gonna be even not just a little bit. I think much cheaper than the headline number that we're seeing right now on these deals, which is still very low, you know?
3: Yeah, I'll add one thing too. Um, uh, yeah, I think that, that makes a ton of sense in terms of uh, what Asher is suggesting. And taking it one step further is really trying to understand why they're buying. Um, you know, I think when you look at the technology that they're trying to build and uh, there's, there's more to that, right? This unified approach. Look, at the end of the day, this, this company was built to create products where they thought there was gaps. Uh, And there was there was kind of an opportunity to slide in as a product or category leader and for them to make an acquisition in a category that they feel that they cannot necessarily become that first page of a search result, I think, says a lot about what they're actually buying um, and the longevity of that um, that that digital shelf space that's being acquired here. So I think we can assume that what they're buying is leading position and we can assume that these products can have an extended shelf life, which implies that a two to four X. And then again, if you use the the multiples um, Asher was just using, we can assume that uh, these investments uh, will be highly accretive as as time even goes on. Um, So again, that's an important distinction to make in terms of what they're buying and the perceived moat that they're suggesting when they make this acquisition. Okay, we'll move on to the next one unless Ryan, do you have a follow-up or are we
1: getting...
0: I was just gonna t- why why are they able to make these acquisitions at such cheap multiples? Is it just uh, the the companies they're buying don't know where to go from there? I'm curious why they're able to make
4: such cheap acquisitions. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I mean, I just think there's there's a, lo- a lack of liquidity in in that those size companies. Um, you know, like I've I've heard. So when I started a couple of e-commerce companies six or seven years ago, I talked to a friend that was in the M&A space and he said, don't even think about getting acquired until you hit 10 and 2. Uh, 10 million of revenue, 2 million of of EBITDA. Like he said, that anything below that and there's just, there's no buyers for you whatsoever. And that was five or six years ago. Those numbers may have come up even more. So, you know, if you're an e-commerce brand doing you know, 10, 15, even 20 million of revenue, you're just not really big enough for anyone to acquire you and, and make any impact to their bottom line. So I I just, I just think that's where Mohawk can, you know, really capitalize on these smaller brands and do this this roll up strategy of of companies that are doing, you know, kind of 15 to 30, 20 to 50, maybe somewhere in there.
0: Yeah. Asher, you got something. Yeah, I agree with
4: Jonah fully. Um
2: Fabrice, I believe it was Fabrice um, actually addressed this on, I believe the last uh, earnings call. And he, he point, one important point he was making is that um, from the perspective of the seller, it's way more than three to five, you know, whatever they're talking about uh, on the headline multiple. The reason why that is, is because the seller, um, you know, they have a, Extremely unoptimized capital structure. They're putting, they're pouring a lot of that money right back into inventory and marketing. So when you look at their actual cash flow their, and their distribution activity uh, to the founders, is honestly at, at times, I'm sure it's probably zero, um, if not, you know, much smaller numbers than the the three to five x. So you know, the the EBITDA that they're valuing it on. So huge spread between. You know, the actual cash flow and what they're talking about on a bid to multiples. You know, exactly. I think Fabrice said, by the way, one second, I think Fabrice said, I forgot the number he used, but I think he quoted, you know, effectively it feeling like 15, 20x to the founders. Sorry, go ahead, Sean.
3: Yeah, no. I mean, I was kind of kind of say some of that, but the, uh, yeah, no, it's the working capital. It's really all, all about working capital. And uh, they, the, these, these sellers can't take the capital out of the business because they need to c- continue on. Um, so they either keep selling or they don't. Um, so it's either taking all your EBITDA and running away, or you're getting multiples of that EBITDA and running away. Um, now, also, you're seeing that the, the complication of trying to launch multiple products or multiple brands across multiple st- uh, structures, which ultimately talks ab- or kind of emphasizes the need for technology to be that, that solution. You know, these, these sellers are really archaic in the way that they're doing things. Um, they're using point solutions like Jungle Scout or Helium 10, which are good solutions in itself, but it's not unified. So it makes it really, really difficult for them to scale beyond what they're already doing. Uh, and then now they're being asked to move international and, and kind of do other things. And, and now you're having the commercialization of this platform where somebody like a Mohawk or a Thrasio or many of the other uh, uh, vendors that are out there that are, that are doing well that are uh, essentially competing against them. So if if you're a seller right now, and again, I've spoken with plenty and I can see underneath the surface what it actually looks like and it's clear why they would sell in this environment. Um, And it it goes back to everything they they just said. Okay, Brett, feel free to ask the next one.
1: Yeah, so we covered this a bit, so I'm going to just pivot it slightly. Is there ever a point within the next few years where they can fund, say, Either acquisitions or just new product launches through their operating cash. Um, do you see that as a path within the next few years? I guess we're gonna start with Jonah on this one.
4: I mean, maybe smaller deals they probably could, but I mean, the way I look at Mohawk is, you know, as they generate more cash, pay down debt, strengthen the balance sheet, you know, they'll be able to write, refinance that outstanding debt at cheaper rates. I mean, I think if they're gonna grow and and um, capitalize on this M and A strategy. I think they're going to still want to do it with debt. They're just going to want to do it with cheaper debt without the warrants. So I, I don't know if they'll actually end up paying for deals straight off the balance sheet, or they'll just, you know, keep leveraging up with with cheaper and cheaper debt as the balance sheet gets stronger. At least that's how I look at it. I mean, they're not, you know, unlike Microsoft, right? Microsoft bought Nuance today for what 16, 17 billion dollars of cash because they have like 100 or 150 billion cash to spend I anyone else to do with it. So I don't see Mohawk in that position anytime soon. So I, I think the goal for them is just to you know to get the cheapest debt possible.
0: I guess would you guys like to see them add debt to the balance sheet? I mean, it, if you're looking at like the past 12 months, it looks like they're just going scorched earth like acquisition after acquisition because uh, they're finding these great deals. Would you like to see them kind of continue that and accelerate it with some debt or would you rather it be done through stock?
4: I, I'd, rather see, I'd rather see it done through debt. I agree.
3: Sean, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, like I said before, it's you, wherever the cheapest form of, of capital is, uh, that's what you take and, yeah, um, I think that flywheel will continue as as this product portfolio continues to expand. Um so yeah, I mean that's my my two cents on all that outside of everything I said.
2: Okay. Okay, Keep in mind too, uh keep in mind that they are using stock as well. It's not purely that
0: yeah. Okay, we're gonna hit a quick break, uh and then on the second half we'll try to hit on our competitive advantages. Uh bring up some some counterpoints as well.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Advanced security must be enabled in the panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All
0: right, welcome back in. Uh, next, we're going to hit competition. Uh, and so this is this is the one I was really hoping to ask. This is the fun part, yeah. Yeah, we have a very uh, collectively a smart bunch here. So um, I guess we'll start with Sean, but how hard is this model to replicate? And then uh, Amy, which is their artificial intelligence engine, sort of helps power um uh, the, the marketing side and acquisition more as well, but uh, how much of an advantage does that give them? Because we know there's other companies out there that are sort of doing this as well.
3: Yeah, um, so yeah, to replicate this, I mean, it's really, uh, I alluded to some of it earlier, but there's the operational level kind of requirements that is uh, you need to uh, uh, have to uh, kind of build a product from to, to scale across the marketplace and therefore marketplaces. And then second is at the underlying individual products. So operationally, if you think um, uh, marketplace sellers will continue to kind of commercialize these operations really across uh, many categories, single marketplace, and eventually on multiple marketplaces, then I think you have to believe that a unified um, solution on the technology side uh, will be required, right? Because you, again, you have to have something that is allowing you to speak from your support to your marketing to your inventory. Today, again, it's point solution. So there's a uh, technology kind of or operational intensity that is required. And that in itself is is not necessarily the norm today on these platforms. Um, so Mohawk is six, seven, eight years ahead of the curve in terms of building that solution and having uh, what I would call a systems advantage, uh, especially when you compare it to the average seller, which is the average kind of seller that's on these platforms. And then on the product side, it's the, the, the fact that each underlying product is highly fragmented. And, and again, this comes down to the product level. So they're able to, or they're, they're competing against um, uh, each product at that product level on a keyword or, or a category. And what we're seeing is it's really, really hard to, move, and Asher would know, it's, it's hard to move off a category leader. And I mean like the first five or depending on which category. Otherwise, and as evidence is, we would expect then a company like GE would essentially be at the top of each appliance category. They have the most money. They have the best brand. Um, so you got to ask yourself, why aren't they the leader? Why aren't they the leader of each category and each keyword? And really, it comes down to um, uh, reviews, ratings, and rankings where you're optimizing for the consumer and really building out a, a, a valuable um, listing that has that digital shelf space that's sitting in that category. And ultimately, when you think about it, so it's operational intensity, if you really believe that the commercialization of these marketplaces will continue, multiple marketplaces, which will make it even more complex. And then at their product side, you can take out one of their products, but you can't take out 1,000 SKUs or 2,000 SKUs. And what does it look like five years from now, if over the last six months, they've gone from 250 SKUs to 1,000? Um so that's kind of how we think about um the replication of of kind of building a consumer package goods for the digital world. That's perfect um Asher you may have your hand up there do you have any follow ups on that?
1: Oh, I actually didn't mean to have my hand up but I, right, it's, it's okay off. it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um
2: no, um yeah so I I think I think the market greatly underestimates the delta in techno- you know technology between Mohawk and some of these other guys that are popping up um, like, you know, for years we've thought about, Hey, we should go roll up e-commerce brands. You know, this is not a new thought, but why has the company only done that over the last year? Um, the reason is because we never thought we were ready. You know, yeah, we could run a thousand mile per hour and, and start acquiring them and turn into a federation of brands, um, which I believe is what these other companies are currently. They're just a, a federation of disparate brands uh, for us we were always focused on the centralized full stack e-commerce platform full automation and that you know took time and the concept for example the last healing solu- the deal we did with healing solutions they onboarded thousands of SKUs uh, in 48 hours you know that is insanity like that that was our dream for years to be able to do that. And before the company was ready to do that, it felt like if you're going to keep ingesting SKUs, not it felt like we knew from experience, if you're going to keep ingesting SKUs, you're going to create an operational nightmare for yourself Uh, because you need, for every deal, you're going to need more uh, customer service, more marketers, more every every, every link in the chain, just throwing more people at it. Um, if you look at the revenue per employee or just employee gro- count growth of Mohawk versus, you know, some of the high profile competitors that are popping up, that tells some of the story. Um, and I've also been hearing just in the industry that they, you know, some of these other aggregators are becoming sort of like, uh, you know, 200 headed monsters with, you know acquiring these companies extremely fast with no centralized tech and ops platform and it becomes this nightmarish federation of brands that said i think there's going to be a lot of great winners in the space i think there's a lot you know they they're going to do well but it will take t- a lot of time for them to get to the place where mohawk is now as far as that centralized stack and who knows where mohawk will be in those few years because um, God knows they're working on the next generation at this point.
0: Joan, any follow up there?
4: And they, yeah, they both have some great comments, so I'm not going to add too much. But I mean, I think when Mohawk got started, you know, they wanted to build a you know tech-enabled CPG company where uh, they think about the tech first, the platform, like Sean said, kind of the the unified approach, the logistics, and all of that, and then bring in the products to layer over the top. I think too many other companies have done it the other way around. They start with the products and then try to figure out the tack later and realize, you know, they've, they've put themselves in a messy situation where they just can't manage that many brands and that many SKUs. So um, I, I think Mohawk had the right idea from the beginning. And now that they've, you know, they've got everything set up, now they can start, um, you know, digesting these, these acquisitions. So I guess my
0: follow-up there would be, does, um, so that if, if Amy's viewed as a competitive advantage, is that something someone could go out and do the same thing? Or does that get better with time where now that uh, Mohawk's been doing it and had so many different acquisitions the Amy software continues to sort of get further ahead of the competitors. Am I thinking about that right? Or is it still sort of re- rep- replicable?
4: Ash is probably the right one to answer that. <laughs> I mean, it's what I said. I mean, it's a
2: six, six to seven year head start is a very significant head start. Um, and and not only that, it's it's the data and experience they've had in that time. So, yeah, like I said, I think there's a lot of great companies that are going to catch up eventually to where Mohawk is today uh, on tech and ops stack. But um you know, I wish. You know, I'm no longer an insider. Obviously, I would. I wish I could see their roadmap uh, for Amy and the platform. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I can guarantee you, it's it's impressive. It, it is. I remember, you know, years back when I was still, uh, you know, at the company every day, it, the roadmap is was truly endless. It felt like a roadmap that could never be completed. Um, there's just so many hooks, platforms, angles that, uh, that you know, and I'm sure it's grown. So my guess is that they're just gonna maintain their lead. Um, and uh, I think Mohawk, they may not be the the leader in some other aspects, like you know some of the competitors have have raised more capital, and it's impressive. Um, but I think Mohawk does have, first of all, I think they have the same access to capital as the competitors um but their technology advantage will be forever in my view all
1: right anything else uh if not i'll move on to the next one this one and correct me if i'm wrong here and we can just move on um but one thing that came up when we were looking at it is why does mohawk license out the amy software we're looking this up uh, I think a few months ago, there was an article on that. Um, would you rather them keep this in-house? And I know it's a tiny part of the business right now. I guess we'll start with Asher. You may know know more about that.
2: Like you said, it's a extremely tiny percentage of the business now. Yeah. Um, I know, though, you know, they, they've said publicly and, you know, they have some senior positions at the company that indicates that they, you know, are working on something bigger with that. All I will say is um, I trust management that whatever they do in that space is going to be a worthwhile and be non-competitive with their core business. So, you know, I think there, there are ways to do it. Um, For me, it's not something I'm overly excited about. It's show me the money. You know, if they announce one day that they've a super interesting deal on that end, that'd be great. But I'm I'm like Sean and Jonah, I'm looking at, you know, how much M&A can they do? How much uh, direct product growth can they do?
1: Okay.
4: So it's not I, the I, core story. Go ahead, Jonah. Yeah. I'll ask a question to Asher. Asher, do you think Amy is more important for which side of the business for identifying opportunities and categories or for identifying M&A targets?
2: I mean, I think the identifying part that's, you know, what we call prospecting, that is whether, you're, you know, that is just one tiny part of what Amy does, right? Tiny. I mean, it's important, but it's a tiny, tiny part of what Amy does. Um, so, you know, as far as the prospecting side, um, I, I would say, you know, well, I guess for the next few years, maybe m M&A in the long term, direct product growth, for sure. But MA, you know, honestly, you there's, you don't need the, AI-based system to do that, um, but you know the 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 other sides of the other aspects of Amy, you know the mar- automated marketing, which that alone I feel like that could be a standalone business, like a really big standalone business. It is the best automated, you know, digital ad buying system for for e-commerce out there, in my opinion. It's unbelievable. Um, what they're doing with on customer service. With AI and and tying customer service into the system, what they're doing with inventory management and logistics and fulfillment, um, you know, there's there's so many of these areas that that Amy touches. Um, you know, prospecting is an important one, though.
0: So the they are sort of. Using that, I guess, secret sauce, if you will. If that's sort of the background. That's their. Uh, that's what their big advantage is. And they're kind of just giving access to brands to be like, here, let us help you sort of optimize. Is that what that licensing part is?
2: To be honest, um, you know, they haven't really announced. You know, they. I mean, they had some. When I left, we had some small pilots. We had, frankly, some of the largest companies in the world asking to license Amy. I'm talking about top five CPG companies, multiple fortune 500s. We never pursued it. Now, you know, they haven't gone. maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Sean or Jonah, but they have, it doesn't seem like they've given a whole lot of detail on that. I know that there was a public release on, I believe like a private equity fund that they helping out or some sort of, uh, fund or financial vehicle that they're integrating with, but um, I, it's infinitesimally small at this point. You know, right. there, there's no, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I guess back to the acquisition side and uh, have Jonah sort of starting on this one. Uh, when we think about competition, if we, if we see Mohawk's uh, business model work out, I imagine there's going to be a lot of copycats that want to do something like this, which would make me think, okay, there's gonna be more demand for these smaller brands. So maybe they'll be paying higher multiples. Do you think Mohawk will have to pay more of a premium to get these brands in the future? Or is that kind of
4: less likely? I mean, there's a lot of these brands out there. So I don't know how many competitors there would need to be for the market to get so crowded where Mohawk was overpaying for deals. It feels like there's plenty of, of deals out there to be had. I mean, the, the name that always gets thrown around is Thrasio. Um, I thought maybe they would come public this year, but they just raised another private round of capital. So I don't know if that means that they're gonna come public later this year or next year, but my guess is we'll probably see them trading publicly in the next 12 to 18 months. I don't know if it's gonna be an IPO, a SPAC, a direct listing, I mean, I guess I'll, we'll have to wait and see, but. I mean, that's that's the one that Mohawk kind of gets compared to. Uh, Thrasio is definitely bigger. Um, I believe they're at a billion, either 500 or a billion run rate. I think they just raised capital at five or six times sales. Um, I actually know one of the angel investors and he's given me all the numbers before. I just forget them off the top of my head, but I think they just raised capital at five or six times sales. Uh, and then Mohawk is trading at three times this year's sales, maybe a little bit lower than that now. So, I mean, that's that's why I kind of hope that Thrasio does come public because I think it would be a nice comp for Mohawk and make Mohawk look a little bit cheaper. Um, but I mean, just in terms of competition, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't I don't know, maybe, maybe Asher or Sean can answer this question better. I don't know how many other of these roll-up companies are out there that have the sort of scale and resources that Mohawk has. Um, but yeah, I mean it's very possible that if Mohawk becomes a, a huge success or a bigger success than it already has been, that you could see some other players come out there and do this. Now, whether or not they started from scratch or what I I don't really know. I mean, Asher's been through the start, you know, Asher helped start this company. So I'm sure he can tell you that the early days it was not easy to get to get going. Um, you know, or maybe just you know, a bunch of guys get together and uh, you know, raise some VC money and start sort of a, a CPG fund and go out there and acquire brands. And then I, so I don't know. I mean, it, it'll be interesting, but I, I'm not too worried about it. I think there's enough e-commerce brands out there that Mohawk can, can run pretty fast for the next two or three years without having to overpay for deals.
0: Uh, yeah. I follow up. Yeah.
2: I mean, a couple of points on that. I mean, this has been talked about, but the, you know the market's gigantic if you just look at the TAM it's Sean would know better maybe 300 to 400 billion just if you look at Amazon right third party but the growth of that TAM is you know growing 40 50 billion again Sean would know these exact numbers better I'm sure 40 50 billion uh, per year so with all the headlines we've seen about thrasio and and branded and this company and that company the total money raised is is a Forget about the TAM, it can't even keep up with the growth of the TAM every year. Not even close, it's just dwarfed by it. I'm also hearing in the market that these companies, you know, despite being, again, all the headlines of all these companies out in the space, it, it almost would have feel like, wow, these companies are bidding against each other for e-commerce deals and it's this active market. It's not. They're barely bumping into each other out there. So the market is so big that these guys, you know, with all the headlines, they're not even. I mean, I'm sure here and there they are, but they're they're for the most part operating in their own little bubbles. That's how big the market is. Um, so
0: interesting.
3: Uh, Sean, do you have anything on that as well, or? Yeah, no, the market's huge, right? And, and at the end of the day, that's what it is. And 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 some of the rough numbers that were thrown out are are, are accurate and um and it and it's growing, right? And and we're also seeing the companies like Walmart turn on and, and really emphasize and even provide incentive to join their platform, which is which is a good thing for anyone that is subject to Amazon's marketplace, but uh, if we're just looking at at this marketplace, there's, think about the competition. The competition is really uh, single product sellers, single brand sellers, right? So we're talking about mom and pop type um, uh, of, of sellers that are on the platform and that's the bulk of them. Um, the other side of it is if we're talking about the acquisition competitors, it, it, we, I think we have to separate it, right? There's There's roughly like 15 that are sitting out there that are making acquisitions both here and in Europe um and kind of decomposing that slightly you have thrasio which does have um capabilities internally meaning they're hiring people that are operationally savvy and to lead uh different parts of that organization but then you have just financial related um um acquisition strategies which i think is actually playing to a key benefit longer term to someone like a mohawk who's product first um because at the end of the day, you have to maintain your, your leadership. I mean, some of these products don't just sit there without any uh, continued curation, understand the supply chain, understand the, the small iterations that are required, understand the marketing capabilities that are required to keep that leading position on on search results, uh, the automated pricing, dynamic pricing that is that is required as well. So, again, when you have financial sponsors coming in, simply for accretive acquisitions, yes, that's good in the short term for potentially those financial investors. But I do think long-term that could be the demise of some of those brands. Um, So there's kind of, there's, there's so many different uh, aspects that are on this platform, but I think we're talking about Mohawk product first uh, has the capabilities from uh, Amy, which is, again, for me, it's more about a unified platform as opposed to kind of some of the buzzwords like machine learning and AI and some other things. It's really just a centralized place. Um, So that's really how I look at, uh, Mohawk from a competitive standpoint relative to who they're competing up against.
0: So do you think being public is puts them in a better position versus competitors?
3: I mean, I mean I'd say, yeah, I, me per- personally, yeah, of course. Uh, I think being able to use some of this equity capital that they've been able to use here in the short term, I think has been uh, beneficial to them. Um, having that equity value that is valued in real time. Uh, you could say in some days it's, it's not so <laughs> exciting, but uh, in, in, um, but for the most part, if you're talking about uh, walking up to a single seller that has one product and you're offering them a small sliver of your, your, your company, I mean, um, talk about a reason to jump on board and kind of be along for the long haul with, it, with an organization. And we've seen that over the last acquisitions uh, where they've become, uh, in some cases, meaningful shareholders uh, of the business and kind of grow with them. Um, uh, one little antidote is again, I, I've spoken with a couple Amazon sellers large. Um, and one of the key things is they don't want to give their baby away. And what's a better way to give your baby away than, uh, kind of, uh, owning the equity and kind of, uh, from a perception standpoint, uh, kind of being along for the ride.
1: Right. Perfect. Do you guys have anything else before we move on to the last few questions here? Nope.
4: No, All right. I mean- I think the I think that Sean hit it though with with regards to being a public company is typically an advantage. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of companies come public via SPAC. Uh, they want to get public because they want access to the, the public markets. They won't be able to use their, their stock as currency for acquisitions. I mean, even, you know, uh Porch, for instance, um, you know, they came public and as soon as as soon as they de-SPAC, they basically announced four deals right away. Um, You know, Upstart just came public in December. They just announced an acquisition of a company called Prodigy. So, you know, I think as these companies, um, there's definitely advantage to being a public company. So I think that works in Mohawk's favor.
1: All right. Perfect. And that rolls right into uh, the concerns and counterpoints. You know, we're going to try to play devil's advocate for any potential shareholders. Um, And we'll start with Sean on this one, because I know on your in-depth write-up, which I think was in August of this year, which you can find your website pretty easily. Um, You talked about the reliance on Amazon FBA. Um, Are there any worries about relying so heavily on Amazon going forward? And how do you see that evolving?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so many aspects to to kind of... (laughs) Uh, takeaway there. I mean, one is really ultimately, so So you hear that a lot. is like, oh, they're on Amazon and and, and there's an issue there. And uh, again, it, it, first understand what's the alignment and what's the interest of Amazon. It, it's really to serve. Um, we've seen that from their cloud business all the way to their consumer business. Um, I think their mission is we aim to be the Earth's most consumer-centric company. So going against your, your merchants, which in theory is going against your consumers, uh, I think would be a black eye specifically in the light of having a, a um, kind of some of the, the, the regulatory uh, potential concerns that are out there today for big tech. Um, then you have the fact that they're a dominant marketplace. I mean, this isn't the first time. I, I, for some reason, this is getting locked into like a Mohawk or some others. Uh, but look, if, you, if you're, if you created an app and you're in iOS and in the app store, or you, you're on Xbox or PlayStation, you're make, you're a gaming publisher. I mean, you're locked right. into one or two uh, uh, marketplaces where you have no control and they kick Madden off. Um, I mean, there would be a revolt from all NFL fans um, if that happened. Right. I mean, obviously those have kind of consumerization to them. The other thing I tend to hear is what if they get too large? And I think that's a silly one because, okay, let's say they get too large what is too large, right? Is it 10%? Is it 5%? And if we throw the numbers around, is it a $300 billion marketplace? Is it a $600 billion marketplace in five years from now? So you're telling me at 5% they're a $30 billion revenue business. Um, that's pretty well, good. Yeah, it's a pretty bad or a good problem to have. Um, and then last thing, I know I'm, I'm taking up a lot, but uh, Amazon Basics and competing against, I know Marketplace Pulse has done a pretty good job at Aggregating uh, Amazon basic products and their 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 search rankings, and what we've seen is a decline in 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 Amazon basics um, across uh, their categories, right? In terms of where they rank after a keyword. So I think when you start to put all that together, I think the the conce- or the, the perception that being on Amazon is is a risk, which it is in some ways, right? I mean, there's risk there. Um, but I do think there's an alignment. Um, th- this isn't the first time this has happened. If they do get too big, that's a good problem to have. And Amazon Basics, you don't have to be the number one product on a on a keyword. You just have to land in the first top five and be kind of in the cereal aisle and be kind of eye level. Um, that's essentially what, what we're
4: talking about here.
0: Asher, Jonah, any follow-ups
4: to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I... I like Sean said, I mean, there's definitely a risk to being so reliant on Amazon, but there's also a lot of advantages to being so reliant on Amazon, since they're the largest e-commerce marketplace in the world. I mean, I would, I, I like that. I like their reliance on Amazon versus if they weren't on Amazon and they were just running all their own Shopify stores and they had to worry about all of their own, you know, lead gen customer acquisition themselves. True. I mean, I think the amount that they give up to be part of Amazon is is worth it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I do worry about Amazon getting more heavily into their, you know, their private label business, but I also do think that they realize the, you know, the politicians are watching, watching over them, and if they start to uh, screw over their merchants and you know, put their private label products at the top in all search results, you know, they'll Jeff Bezos or whoever the new CEO is will be back in front of Congress pretty quickly, so definitely
0: agree okay what about so uh, we try to sort of look at the downsides with our investments uh so i guess what could go wrong here what do you guys see as the potential risks with this investment i mean i guess just how would you track or how would you know if this wasn't going according to plan sean feel free to start
3: yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'll tell you two. One has always been the case and uh, that's actually come down quite a bit. Um, so the, honestly, the biggest risk when we, we uh, first made our investment was product diversification. So we knew that there was 20% of the revenue roughly making, um, or uh, yeah, 20% of the products making roughly 80% of the revenue. That's a risk, right? So what we've seen is these series of acquisitions, which are accretive in nature, but also uh, reducing the dependency on a single product. I think so that that, that risk in itself has come down. The second risk for me is really around execution risk, and and again, you're you're there's always execution risk no matter the business, no matter anything. But when you are patching on uh, many of these uh, acquisitions at this speed, and I'm I'm assuming potentially the flywheel increases at some point, um, there's risk to that. So. Uh, there's execution risk with supply chain because these are physical goods, and and getting them from uh, warehouse to home, I think is a is an important uh, risk to to consider. Now, how are we monitoring this stuff? Well, uh, the reality is is there's APIs for all of this Amazon um, stuff out there, and we're tracking almost every product that they that they have. Um, so that's our risk management. And if you again, if you've seen me on Twitter, I'm posting all types of products that are previously announced right now they have um, the Rift 6 brands, not on Amazon, some of them not on Amazon. And actually the launch of some of their exercise uh, equipment, like the punching bag and and the rower are sitting on Walmart marketplace prior to being on Amazon. And I thought that was an interesting um, uh, phenomenon. I I hadn't seen that previously. So we'll see. I mean, those are kind of how we're tracking some of these uh, risks that are out there.
4: I mean, one of the things I think about, and I haven't heard management actually say this specifically, but I think a lot of their products prior to the MA strategy were a lot of so it was a lot of home goods, but it was also a lot of like one-time buys. Um, and I think as they move more into MA, I think they want to try to find products where it's more of a you know subscription or recurring revenue stream. I mean, we all like half of the stuff that I buy off Amazon is just set up for auto ship. You know, I get it every two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, however I set it up. I think Mohawk is going to hopefully start pushing harder in that direction just so they, so it's more predictive revenue going forward.
0: Okay. Asher, how about you?
4: Agree.
2: Another risk that no one's mentioned yet is China. You know, there's a lot of uh, Chinese manufacturing involved, like with every other consumer goods product and uh, consumer goods company in the world. So I think we're good there, but, if there was, you know, there's always that exposure. Obviously they went through what I would think would be the worst of it with, uh, you know, the, the the trade war that we had a few years ago and didn't really affect them, but that's another one out there.
1: Got okay. you. You got any more questions? Uh, I think that's it. I can't add anything to this. So. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, uh, so for any listeners, where can they find you? Uh, uh we'll
3: start with sean on chit chat money no on uh on twitter um i'm sure i uh, you'll you'll see us on chit chat money's uh tweet when they when they throw this out there and um i think it's underscore sean david <laughs> okay. gotta remember that one yeah so that's where you can find me
0: and there's also a good write-up on mohawk if you want to read about it on sean's website i think it's yeah. averyco.com I'm getting that right
3: Avery.xyz, uh, so oh, taking oh, okay. the, uh, we didn't want to pay the $60,000 for .com, and and uh, and Google went with XYZ, so we thought it was cool. There we go, there we go. All
4: Jonah, right. Asher, what about you guys? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, uh, just my first name, last name, so at Jonah Lupton, and then in my bio, there's some links to my websites and newsletters and stuff that you can sign up for. Perfect.
0: Twitter. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Alright, All right, thank you guys. I appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Okay, welcome back in. Thanks again to Jonah, Asher, Sean for all coming on. Really enjoyed the interview. But we're moving to our show notes. Plenty of good stuff this week. Uh, Things got crazy. Yeah, the froth is back.
1: The it's fr- so bad. There's, feels there's like fe- froth-
0: it felt frothy this
1: week. Feels like February 1st. Feels like late January again. Not sure if it'll stick, but it was it was a fun week for sure. So my first story is the New Jersey Deli. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this.
0: If you haven't, though, uh, David Einhorn wrote a letter to his partners or investors sort of warning about some of the froth in the markets and what he's seen. Uh, One company he mentioned was Hometown International. The ticker is H-W-I-N. It is a single deli in New Jersey. Uh, In 2019, it had $22,000 in sales. Uh, in 2020, it had $13,000 in sales. Tough year for delis, obviously, with COVID. I <laughs> guess they were uh, – weren't they closed for half
1: the year? You might begin to that.
0: Yes. Uh, but the largest shareholder is also the CEO, CFO, treasurer, and a director. And he happens to be the wrestling coach at the high school that's next to the deli. <laughs> yeah. um, the company – at one point,
1: traded at a one hundred thirteen million dollar market cap. Still there, to, still over a million dollars today, according to Koifin. Right now, I'm looking Einhorn, at it right now. That's mind blowing, Einhorn. Uh, well, Einhorn you're just stated. not discounting. You're just not discounting the cash flows. Sorry,
0: <laughs> Einhorn <laughs> stated that the pastrami must be amazing. Um, well,
1: they have, a, as Austin Learman said, they have a sandwich as a service model.
0: Yeah, I think someone else, someone else might have said that first.
1: Oh, but, well, it's all stolen. That's just what I saw Sass.
0: Um, anyway, it trades over the counter, and the company has about 60 total shareholders. Nice. 60, not 60,000, 60. Nice. Um,
1: in the time that the deli was closed, the stock nearly tripled. Well, how many shares did they issue? Because even if it tripled, I mean, that's still kind of crazy.
0: The company sold 2.5 million shares in 2020. I think they had north of 2 million in uh, cash from stock issuance? Yeah,
1: because we're looking at a thirteen dollars share price right now. So yeah, it's a solid, solid amount. Yeah,
0: this is maybe the frothiest thing I've seen in my entire time since investing.
1: No, Nicola, what? I'm gonna have some later too. That's maybe, a little frothy too. But
0: this is Nicola had. I mean, there was a narrative behind
1: it. Yeah, that had this a
0: con- has man. no narrative.
1: It is a concept. Yeah, that had a concept. Well. Yeah, I mean you can't defend Did you the deli see the you can't pictures defend of the, the deli. Yeah, I know, you can't defend the deli. But it's, it's it's minimal, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's not I guess it's not surprising, but it's so weird. Like I'm not surprised that this ha- this is happening just, in early twenty twenty one, but it's so it's also weird strange, that it's a, like, the deli it's just the deli. Like I thought this would be a tech startup or something.
0: Who would like how'd they come up with the idea to go public? <laughs> doing I don't know. Thirteen thousand in sales.
1: Uh, it's something. That is, it's something. I don't know. Honestly, well, no, how did they props, get this to this wrestling coach? How do they get the stock price up? There's got to be something going on. How do you? How I do don't you, know how, that's how do you get the stock price? There to might go be up?
0: something. Maybe. Maybe there's some hidden recipe. <laughs> I like
1: don't know. Like a
0: really good sandwich.
1: I don't know. I they think they could license out maybe. <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, it's probably fraud, but we'll see. I guess there's, there's I no proof how, yet. There's no proof yet. I don't know how this isn't. I mean, Einhorn tweeted it
0: out or shared it through his letter. Every it was all over Twitter, and it still trades at more than a one hundred million dollar market cap. I mean, you can't less than uh, like there's I don't know. barely hundred like. Uh, if i read the cnbc article correctly there's only
1: a few shares that trade hands each day yeah so it's like it's so stupid that it's just it is what it is no one can like no one big enough can short it it's there's no reason to go long it's just kind of there it's a bit like dogecoin you know what i mean you're just like eh, it's there it's just there it's crazy though scarce asset (laughs) <laughs> it all. Well, there will only be there will only be twenty million New York deli. There's only mm.
0: one deli out there. There's
1: only one New Jersey deli. If you know this, yeah.
0: All right. Uh, what's your story?
1: Okay. On a serious note, Amazon shareholder letter came out. Good one. Bezos's last one. Um, I've read them all, not to brag. And uh, this was probably his best one. Some of them in the early two thousands were good too, because it's kind of the conviction in keeping the business going. Uh, a few things he talked about. One, he talked about at the core. Sustainable businesses create more value than they take from their stakeholders. Is this a good basic criterion for evaluating a stock, do you think?
0: Yeah. It's
1: kind of the first thing?
0: Yeah, I mean it, it, it talks to the non-zero sumness thing, yeah. um, sort of that principle that uh, both the customers and the businesses are winning um, in those transactions. I think Amazon's sort of the
1: Pinnacle of that. Uh, do you have any companies, let's invert are there any companies that provide, like, they use less value? That less value, that, or maybe an example that's kind of maybe hard to come up uh, at the top of your head. I'm trying to Hometown think. Hometown
0: International, maybe.
1: <laughs> Hometown International. Well, then the stock's worth, potentially, the, I think they provide value to their customers, but. I don't know, their shareholders might not be. I mean, it's
0: hard to be a successful company providing no value to your customers.
1: Or taking more than you provide. I mean, I think, I guess in general, the thing about pricing power is you really have to balance that. There's been a lot of companies in the past that, you know, they have the pricing power and they use it, but then that really... Yeah. Then they start that that value equilibrium starts sliding more and more in their direction. Yeah, they're providing still some value to their stakeholders or their customers, but if they start taking more of that, then you lose the sustainability of your business. You anger your customers. You allow people to come in at a lower price point. It's that weird dynamic that yeah that you have to balance. I mean, Amazon's kind of in that you know with Amazon Prime stuff like that.
0: <laughs> Bezos really does make me question. If pricing power is really, uh, should be sort of a uh, investing thesis, it should be
1: well, it's nice. it's able not, to generate yeah.
0: value without having to raise prices to do so.
1: Yeah, I think pricing power is nice to a point, but it can't be your entire thesis of where growth is going to come in. And there's I- no if, such in thing as unlimited power.
0: pricing power.
1: Oh, well, no, 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 no.
0: Even yeah. the most sticky businesses in the world. I just yeah. don't think it exists, but yes, to uh, to your point, this was an incredible letter,
1: um, kind of yeah. a
0: salute by oh, captain, <laughs> <guess>. my captain.
1: <laughs> I get yeah, yeah, it was really good. Uh, the, but some of the times I feel like he's a bit of a hypocrite, just because. With this next point, um, they talk about treating their employees better. It's been a problem for Amazon for years that their their employees kind of complain about harsh working conditions. Yeah, some of it might be overblown. But do you think with Amazon specifically, and I guess other companies, can it bite them in the butt unless they become more like Costco where people consistently rate them as a great place to work? It feels like they're not providing here more value to their employees than they're getting from them.
0: Maybe. I I am starting to be of the camp that maybe some of these Amazon uh, employees hate their work. Uh, might be a little overblown.
1: Oh, it definitely is. I mean, it's a classic, you know, news story. But I've whatever. heard a lot of
0: positive things from Amazon employees as well. Um, well, yeah. I don't know. It feels it's, like everyone makes Costco the poster boy, you know, like why don't you just be more like Costco? It's like, I don't know, it's hard.
1: <laughs> well, it is hard, but, I mean, doesn't that make Costco, doesn't that make Costco's moat, I guess you could describe it, even better now that they're, they're able to have, you know, this system, but their employees are actually enjoying themselves. I'm uh, not all of them, but the, in general, they rate the business highly as a great place to work.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: it seems well, like a cool kudos to
0: management, but I don't yeah, know. I mean, Amazon employees are getting paid well too.
1: Fifteen dollars an hour? Would you work fifteen dollars an hour at a warehouse? It's uh, a tough life. Uh,
0: not all of them get paid fifteen dollars an hour. First off,
1: Minim- well, minimum, minimum.
0: That is the minimum, yes. What uh, what is Amazon, or what's Costco's minimum?
1: Uh, I think it's like average is like twenty two. It's hard to tell though. They don't. I think minimum is like sixteen or something. But je- managers will, yeah, managers will make like hundred k.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I okay. Here's he's another question. Sometimes, but
1: well, it's not political. It's just he, I said the, hypocritical. The uh, hip, yeah, I say Hi- hypocritical because it seems like they always say over the last decade. You know, they're like, "Oh, we got to treat our employees better," and then they never actually do. Like, they didn't even put AC in a lot of their warehouses for like a decade. I think I read. And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, I can see why they're upset. Well, here's an. I got another question. More no from it. <laughs> yeah. See, head. like, I, just. Your margin up, is
0: my opportunity.
1: Yeah, that, that, I think that thought can maybe. And I guess there's nothing you can complain if you're an Amazon shareholder, but here's another question if you are looking at a business and you see that they either they they raise their minimum wage or they're like all right we're gonna pay our employees better is that you know some people are like oh my god that's gonna be such a high cost don't you think of that as like an investment and you hope to get a nice return on invested capital there with the employee base because if you have happy employees if you have well-played employees i would think that is an advantage uh over your competition
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of tough because some of it, a lot of it comes down to the culture too. Like you could argue, and there's been a lot of case studies that there's less employee turnovers if your employees are happy. But even if I was working at McDonald's or whatever, and I was getting paid better than average somewhere else, you're still, it's still sort of an intermediary job. It's not something you want to stick around for.
1: I guess it depends on what location. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. I think it comes back down to if the employees are happy, then the cu- you know, the customers are happy. It can be an advantage. Like, you saw that, you know, there's all those complaints of fast food places that are uh, saying, like, we can't hire anyone. And I was like, well, I mean, I, this isn't a, an original thought. You know, everyone was saying this, like, well, you might have to just pay them more. I don't know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. If you're like, oh, we can't hire anyone. Well. I think if you just raise that, that wage, maybe you might uh, <laughs> might get more employees.
0: Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know if warehouse employees make the customers more happy really fits here.
1: Oh, maybe, uh, I don't know.
0: Has it ever deterred you from buying something on Amazon?
1: Well, no, no. It's just uh, the framework is uh, they're going to do their job better and then aggregate – the customers are going to be happier because the, the rate of getting the packages there on time is just going to be better. The, value, you know, the, the customers become more satisfied because p- the employees are doing their job better. It seems like, I don't know, I just think of that as something that companies underrate as an investment they can make into the future. Netflix yeah. is big on that, too, of paying employees that are really good. And it's different because it's like mostly well, well, like software. There. They're they're paying also them.
0: good at firing employees that suck.
1: <laughs> they're uh, well, they're they're an interesting culture. But they they were talk. I think Hastings talked about how you know if they're this, this employees, especially in software, are providing so much value. You know, well, why wouldn't we just not pay up for them if they're going to perform well? You know, it keeps them around.
0: Yeah, I just don't know if it's necessarily apples to
1: apples here. No, it's not. It's not, but. But, all right, um, is that all you have for the story? Uh, okay, last one. Last one, he talks about fighting to be original. This is a classic, you know, motivating people, but uh, he said there as a company, and I guess as a person, you want to resist the temptation to be normal, because if you're normal, that's just kind of what everyone flows to as, like, a company. And the question I have about this is, when a company just copies other companies, is that a sign they've lost originality? Big... Example here is obviously Facebook copying other social media companies, um, I mean, but uh, is perhaps, that in general a sign that they've lost their originality?
0: Yeah, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're just becoming a copycat, I guess you're losing some sense of originality. But I mean, you kind of like see that with Oracle the, and know, stuff
1: like that too. Facebook's, I, I think Facebook's. Well, ignore Facebook. Front. <laughs> ignore Facebook. That's just one example. It, there's obviously a special situation, but just in general.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, I'm going to move to my story, though. The Coinbase, I guess... It was an IPO. It was a direct listing. So yeah,
1: it's per, then it's it's so bu- so much better. Right? Yeah,
0: um, they went public this week, and I think it was last Wednesday via a direct listing. The market cap at one point reached more than a hundred billion dollars. Um, now the insider selling stuff was overblown. I think a lot of people interpreted this stuff wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean classic, classic. You know, people the, the, said the CFO sold a hundred
0: percent of his shares. That's not true. Uh, the CEO did not sell ninety-seven percent of his shares either.
1: It's all right. Four and four is very hard to read uh, so I'm not you know it's tough yeah. to read <laughs> yeah
0: uh, they did sell shares That that is true I think I would sell shares uh, yeah
1: why not I don't know it's and, yeah, overpriced it's kind of a
0: hurrah like you made it it's a yeah. hundred billion dollars um, but anyways the, the hundred billion dollar market cap puts Coinbase at a price to sales of about 83 times
1: yeah it's, I mean
0: it's froth um, I don't know so And I think it's about a 1,000 times earnings, but that stuff doesn't matter. Um, Operating leverage, I don't know. Does this make any sense to you? Because I know we tend to be haters on crypto. I mean, mean, the valuation doesn't really make much sense at all, to be honest. But doesn't the competitive landscape, doesn't that feel like Coinbase isn't going to be the one?
1: We yeah be a commodity product eventually yeah, yeah that's I was gonna say I don't know the competitive landscape in crypto, but if you look at and also I don't get the decentralized centralized decentralized exchange, you know what I mean the conundrum the catch 22 that these things are under where it's like, oh, it's crypto, we're decentralizing finance. oh no, but you can all centralize on this platform. That's besides the point. when you're looking at stock exchanges or if you're looking at brokerages, What's succeeded in the past is lowering costs and scaling, right? Why Schwab has succeeded, stuff like that. Um, I really don't get how they can keep up the four percent take rate, and I see that going to you know close closing down to zero because there's it's pretty easy to undercut someone on price here, right? Yeah. Right. But, I mean that's the whole point. I feel like the the margin is just going to totally evaporate. Uh, I say that as not an expert in the industry, but uh, what are your yes. thoughts?
0: It has become sort of the mainstream crypto wallet, though. I will give them that. They, they're they the ones that are pumping the YouTube ads with earn free crypto by learning about it. I think they do attract sort of the typical people um, that don't understand it. They're probably the first one because they might be the only
1: notable one. That, that's true. They are good at marketing. They are good at marketing for sure. They make it accessible. But you have to question accessible to what? I don't know. Uh, you know what I mean? What is this stuff? It's egregious. I mean – Yeah, it is. The 4% like, percent is insane. Think
0: about that they won't take – like they require – it's – it's what's strange to me is uh, the whole idea of a decentralized currency is sort of like democratizing the process, right? Like, yeah. But – and that's why they command eight percent interest rates on normal accounts in whatever that blockfire
1: BlockFi DeFi thing. stuff is. Yeah. But then they still doesn't, are make, sense fine still doesn't make sense to me. Still doesn't make sense to Giving four
0: percent to Coinbase, that's not de- that's not democratized.
1: I don't know. It's like Robinhood. It's all big gaslight. You know, they're saying they're doing stuff, and it's just the complete opposite.
0: I think I don't know. There's Could some
1: be some. wrong. Yeah.
0: What about, what's your next story?
1: Okay, another fun one. $87 billion EV startup in China. Bloomberg story out called, uh, on a story, I'm sorry, a company called Evergrande. um, $87 billion EV startup that has, drumroll, never sold a car. Planning on having deliveries by the end of 2022. I think they were trial deliveries. um, Timeline has been pushed back repeatedly. Their goal as the story says, 5 million cars a year by 2035, but management doesn't have much experience building cars, so they're kind of suspect here. There's a lot of other things in, in the story. One, they're worth more than, you know, like Ford, the classic stuff like that. Who? So it seems like the, the 5 million cars are priced in, but who am I to say? Um, there's also a ton of competition in EVs. Uh, last thing, and this was strange, this kind of puts it into the Delhi territory for me, although um, it is in China, so it, it's something that you know we have less understanding of. They could have some different parts of the business here. But management has some strange KPIs. They get bonuses for selling apartments, which doesn't make any sense. And it seems to me that there's some interesting... <laughs> I just don't know how this got to eighty-seven billion dollars. Like, what, what what happened?
0: The thing is, it's like almost unshortable because.
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> when does it stop? Like, eighty-seven billion, four billion, three hundred billion. What's the difference? Four hundred.
1: What's the difference? Four billion. Well, the ability to raise cash, I guess, but it's like Neo. Neo seemed ridiculous. But it's going to, as long as that price stays inflated, I, I have no idea where NEO's is trading at right now. But, you know, obviously on a trailing basis, those numbers look ridiculous. Their gross margins were negative, if I remember looking at NEO, just from positive, um, which shows how hard the car business is. Uh, as long do as people
0: the, understand how difficult it is to just, I don't know, you can't just go out like, I'm going to start a car company. All right. Like, you got to, first, you got to engineer it. I mean, you got to engineer a car that's differentiated, and then you got to be better than all your other competitors.
1: Yeah, it's a commodity. I don't know. And the margins are still razor thin. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know. I, it's, it's... It's so strange. It's crazy. And we talk about this because right now it feels like we're on the back end of uh, the EV bubble. I
0: guess higher margin.
1: <laughs> I guess. I have no idea why they get bonuses for selling apartments. Seems strange. Um, yeah. If someone knows anything about Evergrande, I doubt. I mean, it's an under-followed company. And how it got to $87 billion, let us know. Would be interesting to talk about. But... One thing that's we've been kind of a theme in finance on this show, whatever, investing through the last few months has been the EV bubble. I think we can clearly say it's a bubble at this point. How do we rank the EV bubble in comparison to the other mini bubbles of the last decade? I'll go and say it went one now, crypto bubble 2017, two, I'll go cannabis bubble in 2018, three. And I'm going to go 3D printing one a little while back as the next one. Those ones were all clearly just things got out, out, out of hand.
0: Yeah, I don't know how you'd rank them. Like, this e- one's definitely up there, but is I mean, it worse than tulips?
1: Well, tulips were kind of fake if you read the history books, but.
0: the uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it's up there, but it just, like, I'm willing to bet this has been going on. There's probably something like this at least every five years, some sort of micro well, there's, bubble.
1: There's been five in the last five years, I think. EVs is bigger, though. It's like a, trillion, a few trillion dollars, or trillion dollars, I maybe.
0: history has a way of repeating itself. Uh, mm. and I would not be surprised if we saw another one. The space bubble, is that coming?
1: Uh, there was a mini one with Virgin Galactic. We'll see. As SpaceX ever IPOs, I mean, that'll just turn into a meme stock right away. Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, okay, my story this week, uh, apparently J.P. Morgan is going out of business. Uh, our favorite person, I'm not going to say his name, yeah, no, I need but to say someone that. came on and uh, someone went on to financial media or I think a, one of the financial media news outlets and said that J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Wells Fargo potentially won't exist within 20 years. Um, I just wanted to say that J.P. Morgan's Earliest roots trace back to 1799. It's been 222 years since its start, and it now has more than three trillion dollars in assets. Um, I don't understand this. I don't understand why people think the rise of crypto means the end of banks.
1: Yeah, I know it's, it's weird. Like that lending is still gonna like lending still. You is, still need someone
0: to lend money or Yeah, lend credit's,
1: value. yeah credit's still gonna exist. That's so. what I don't know. They evolved to like. <laughs> they would just change. Yeah, they've evolved. Exchange? Yeah, they've evolved for the last two hundred years. Um, also, saying they're going to be gone in twenty years is interesting because they don't. I don't know. What this is exactly. Don't they have existing loan books? Um, right. Some of these loans are pretty long term. Maybe they won't. <laughs> or maybe they're going to start losing loans, um, new loans to new banks, stuff like that, or maybe they'll start writing bad credit, something like that. But. Yeah. It's I not guess like. The um, only possibility is that there's some sort of catastrophic
0: blow up, but I don't think that was sort of the intent of the statement. I think it was saying that yeah. it'll get replaced by some sort of new system, which what? I don't see happening.
1: Yeah. And w- 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 isn't the system just going to be credit still? Yeah. It's just loans. It's just loans, guys. Guys, there's it's just loans. It's just loans. Like, right. just, just, if you put it in a database, it's still loans. And That's I bet your story. you. a story. Okay. What's your next sorry. Thing? No need to rant. Uh, So this one's serious. I'm going to discuss on this one. Stitch Fix founder and CEO is retiring from the board. Big announcement. A little bit of surprise from Stitch Fix. Um, Katrina Lake is retiring to become chair of the board. Elizabeth Spaulding, current president, is stepping in to take over. And it looks like she was likely running the show or half running it for a while now because she was in charge of two of their big efforts, international and direct buy. Those are kind of the most important growth initiatives. Lake brought the company to over $1.7 billion in sales in less than a decade. She's still under 42, so I think, or sorry, under 40 as well. Uh, I think she's like 39 or 38. That's interesting because it seems like that's early for a, a founder to go out. But, you know, whatever. Everyone has their own personal reasons um, when a founder leaves, how do you think about that? Because I know we saw someone, um, our friend Austin Lieberman, and you, know, you respect. I think he tweeted, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, that he was going to be selling or considering selling his StitchFix shares because of this. And you got to respect, you know, having your whole, imbe- you know, your investment thesis is around the founder. When the facts change and the founder's not there, you may not be comfortable owning shares. But when a founder leaves in general, how, how do you think about it?
0: I um, mean, I think it's different every time. I think this. Is a case of Stitch Fix evolving, um, and it sounds like Katrina Lake was sort of giving Spalding the reins yeah. prior to her departure. Um, she's still on the board. I'm a big fan of founders cashing out early. I've always been, <laughs> why why
1: what's go live so your life,
0: go retire. You're 40. I don't, I don't know. know. You got all that money
1: to do what? I don't know. I'd rather run the company. It's kind of fun. I don't know. Gates
0: was relatively young when he went out. I I (laughs) just kind of respect I respect a baller move When you just go out Like early What do you mean by baller move? I don't know Now you've got all this money You're retired You can do whatever you want Now you're the only Now you're just the
1: chairman You
0: don't have to run The day-to-day operations I feel like that would Bog you down
1: i mean, You're not i mean, CEO's really not doing Day-to-day You're kind of big picture anyways You're supposed to be I don't
0: think that's How it always plays out I don't know. I think this is a good situation. I, I don't think it's.
1: Are there any? I, situ- there are, I mean, are there? I think situ- the business model's changing. Oh yeah, I mean they haven't evolved. Yeah, if you I mean, to be serious, uh, you know, not any recommendation on stif- Stitch Fix or anything, but if you are confident in Spalding, um, I mean, it seems like nothing will change here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough to tell though. Sometimes if a founder leaves they are the key asset sometimes like if bezos left in 2006 it would kind of be the same timing here i mean that it can impact it i'd pay know?
0: more attention to what she does with her equity
1: that's important too i guess yeah that's if true that's true if she's true. just
0: leaving it like what if she thought spalding was that much better of a ceo and she decided to step down and said uh I'll keep my equity and let you make money for me. Yeah,
1: and maybe she has a family or something now. She wants to spend time with them. That's great. I guess I everyone has their yeah. own personal situation. But it is this classic thing when this news hits. Uh, there's all investors always... sell sells off. Well, yeah, and uh, stuff's generally when there's any sort of thing that is a surprise. Thing, you know, the stock will sell off, but people get flustered because it's like a surprise. You have to just kind of think through the situation and, you know... <laughs> I mean, maybe they'll do bad in the next two years. Okay, that's fine. Then the thesis just broke. But yeah, it's interesting when a founder leaves, though, and when there's a new management change because it can really affect the long-term trajectory of a company. What's your next story? Uh, I want to talk about Dogecoin. (laughs) Keep this simple. Any thoughts, craziness, any stories, anything?
0: I have no hot take on it. I'm hearing a lot of like, uh, I was at like a barbecue and people were talking about it. They're talking about their gains in it. And there's nothing like more. It's so hard to just sit there and be quiet. Like uh, I don't know.
1: It's That's so weird. it's gone mainstream for sure. It's Doge but, Day today, I guess. I, I don't know what that even means. I just saw something about it, but it's it's wild. It's wild. It's it's pure speculation. It's 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 a total just meme. It's it's crazy. It makes obviously zero sense, but. I mean, I think he's, Elon was right. It is the ultimate irony. Yeah, he's definitely. Yeah, he's right. Like I'm not saying this. If sarcastic. that became,
0: you know, global reserve currency,
1: <laughs> it's similar to the U.S. dollar because you can. I was reading the specs on it. You can technically print as much as you want. So, I mean, it's not that different, except it's controlled by no one. Or it's not controlled by well, government, no you know. One it's a, except yeah, one guy. I, uh, I I I also have this weird joke going on in my head where the Dogecoin price isn't actually affected by buying and selling. There's just a guy like has two levers like up and down, and he <laughs> just just deciding where it's going. And people are putting money in, but they they think it's going to drive the price up, right? But it's really just the guy deciding. And he's like, "All right, let's just totally pump it today." I know that's not actually happening, but. It is nothing, it's not that far from the truth. All right. Before we wrap things up, we have a tweet from the St. Louis Fed. Uh, there's a link there if you haven't seen it. There's T-shirts out where you can have some Fred economic data on your T-shirt. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I'm buying the merch.
1: 20 bucks. I think I might get it. t I think it was just a
0: matter of time before the Fed started selling merch.
1: Yeah, well, it's a diversification
0: strategy. I mean, if I were – like. Let's say this was a bubble and twenty <laughs> years from now you looked back and you said Dogecoin was almost the global reserve currency and the Fed was selling merch. <laughs> well it's not really that I mean, I would think anyone who didn't know his bubble was an idiot. <laughs> I, mean,
1: I don't I don't think I don't obviously think
0: the... that's not that's not a real investing thesis, but uh, it's just
1: it's it's just the Fred website selling uh selling there were something. some great comments to it. <laughs> yeah, what's the top comment? No, oh, it was deleted. Happy birthday, Fred. Purchasing power, USD. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, guy. Thanks, Obi-Wan Kenobit. (laughs) <laughs> uh, with the red eyes here All right, uh, I think that's going to do it, right? yeah, it's all all stories on that yeah. thank
0: you guys for listening, hope you enjoyed the interview uh, as we mentioned I think and before the interview we are uh, general partners at Arch Capital and uh, partners there may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast uh, we're also not financial advisors so anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation thank you guys for listening, we'll see you next time